Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a podcast series that proves that truth can be stranger than fiction. In this week's episode, entitled Hospital Mash, I tell a story about sickness, injury, and an alarming trip to the infamous St. Vincent's Hospital. There, I discover every manner of corruption and incompetence, including bad luck, bad ideas, and bad nurses. Always be wary of taking an ambulance in New York City, because you might not like where you end up. Hospital M-A-S-H. M-A-S-H, an acronym for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, was a dark American war comedy slash drama television series that aired on CBS in the 1970s. Warning, this episode contains graphic language and sexual content that may not be appropriate for children or other listeners. When I tell my nephew I'm looking to hire a carpenter, he recommends a guy named Eddie Rizzo. What he neglects to tell me is that he's only met the guy once, in a bar, and they were both drinking. Eddie arrives for the first day at my studio on time. I give him my Rockwell circular saw, ask if he knows how to use it, and he responds, of course. So I leave him to get to work, cutting up a full sheet of 5 8 inch thick plywood into 8-foot strips. As I walk away from the workshop, I hear the saw start, then jam, at which point Willie screams in pain. I race into the shop, where I find Eddie clutching his badly bleeding hand, whimpering in pain, and blood is everywhere. When the saw jammed, he kept his finger holding down the trigger and reached under the plywood with his other hand to loosen the blade. When it re-engaged, the blade ripped across his palm, almost cutting his hand in half. All this happened in the first three seconds of his first day on the job. The hand is bleeding so badly I apply a tourniquet to his upper arm, then hurry him up the stairs to my Dodge van, and we race to St. Vincent's, my first visit to this nearby hospital. Arriving at the ambulance entrance, we're told to head down a hallway to check in. Eddie's leaving a thin trail of blood. Surprisingly, the reception room is filled with policemen, many of them joshing around. I ask one of the cops, what's going on? He responds, a cop shot himself in the foot and all the nearby cops laugh loudly. Now Eddie and I are upstairs, in what looks like a makeshift operating room, being attended to by a young intern. After she injects Eddie's bleeding hand with a painkiller, his whimpering abates, and while he looks away, she begins to do a lousy job of stitching up the palm of his hand. She enlists me to help keep the hand pinned down to the table, which is completely nuts because I'm not an ER room assistant, nor have I even washed my hands. While I'm thinking that I shouldn't even be in the room, there's a knock at the door and her boyfriend enters. This is weird. But then the situation takes a turn for the surreal. Without missing a beat, he launches into what he labels as a Christmas story. As I was approaching the hospital, he begins, a Brooklyn independent garbage truck lined with bright flashing Christmas lights, was driving at such speed along 7th Avenue that when the truck hit a big bump, sparks shot out from the undercarriage and a half a dozen full bags of trash spilled out of the back hopper 
and slid along in the same direction as the truck, leaving a trail of trash before just missing me and then hitting various parked cars and street poles. He closes with, Ah, yes, Christmas in New York. Just at this instant, the intern goes a little too deep with the needle, and Eddie's hand whips up, sending a splatter of blood in all our faces. Nobody is wearing a surgical mask or eye protection, and I say to myself, God, I hope this guy doesn't have AIDS. This was my first experience at St. Vincent's Hospital. Fast forward a decade, and now I'm at an HIP facility on 93rd Street, undergoing a biopsy for prostate cancer, which is a dark comedy of errors all in itself, the biggest of which is my contracting a particularly lethal form of sepsis in my bloodstream from bacteria that enters during the procedure. Once my blood is infected, it spreads to all the organs in my body, unbeknownst to me. I return to my art studio feeling okay, but then, mid-afternoon, I pass out on the floor. My studio partner, Jen, and the other people I work with walk me back to my apartment and put me to bed. Two hours later, I wake up delirious with chills and a condition called rigors, where I shake and flail around uncontrollably with my arms and legs. Calling 911, I manage to give myself a black eye and a fat lip. What follows is the recording of my actual 911 call. I'm really sick. Um, I got a biopsy today for my for my um prostate. Address. One seventy seven Thompson. Yeah. Apartment number. Number one. I'm just I'm shaking uncontrolled. First floor back. The one two five zero five. Eight three six. Last name. L E F S and Frank E V R E. Okay, hold on. I'll connect you. Hold on. Okay, six one eight six one eight twelve ten in Manhattan. He's a patient, all right. Okay, my uncle, you're the patient. What is your age? How old are you, sir? I'm fifty nine. And what's wrong? Um, I'm shaking uncontrollably. I had a biopsy today. At ten in the morning, okay. and I woke up just I'm just shaking like you wouldn't believe. Carolina, we're gonna verify the address. Are you home alone? Yeah. Okay, that address is one seventy seven Thompson Street, apartment number one. Yep. And that's near Bleecker Street and West Houston Street, and that's on the first floor. Yep. Telephone is two one two five zero five eight eight three six. Yep. Okay, are you able to get to the door and take that lock off the door? Yes. Okay, take the lock off the door. Come back to the phone. Take your time. We'll stay on the line and wait. Let me know when that lock is locked. You're cold, right? I'm freezing. Okay. I'm gathering my whole body to safety. Um, okay, let me know when that door is unlocked. Okay. The line's still open. Okay. Hello? Hello. Okay, we've already sent for help. Wrap yourself up with a blanket, okay? Okay? Thank you. We'll be there shortly to help you. Thank you. Okay, sir. I'm also a HIP member of the team. Okay, we'll be there. We've already sent for help for you, okay? Okay. Within a few minutes of unlocking the door, I have to get up and stumble to the buzzer to let in the emergency technicians. Tia, my dog, is barking and growling because she doesn't want them to put me on the stretcher. 
Once inside the ambulance, they tell me, we're going to St. Vincent's. And I say, but I don't want to go to St. Vincent's. It's a terrible hospital. And they say, we have no choice. We're required by law to take you to the nearest hospital. At this point, I pass out. I reawaken in a bed in St. Vincent's emergency room. Can I speak to the doctor in charge, please? When he finally shows up, I tell him I want to be moved to Lenox Hill Hospital. He sternly responds, you will not survive an ambulance trip to Lenox Hill. At this point, I lose consciousness again. When I wake up, an ER nurse is digging through my bedsheets, looking for a vial of blood. She's drawn three vials and can only find two. Again, I lose consciousness. The next time I wake up, I'm in a private room in intensive care with all sorts of wires, tubes, and monitoring equipment attached to me. I'm still delirious with blurry vision, yet a nurse wants me to sign an inventory sheet for a paper bag that she insists contains my wallet, cell phone, clothes, keys, and my new Adidas sneaks, which will be locked in the head of security's safe. I manage to scrawl an illegible GL on the receipt, but I'm still aware enough to wonder Why don't they have patient lockers? I go in and out of consciousness over the next few days, so I have no idea of how much time has elapsed. On one occasion, when I wake up, my studio partner, Jen, is sitting in a darkened room. I realize that I'm in a straitjacket, and she tells me that they tried to insert transfusion needles in both sides of my neck, and I was so resistant they had to restrain me. At this point, I can see the entire upper end of my bed is bright red from my blood and I lose consciousness yet again. Now when I regain consciousness, my studio partner has been replaced by my primary care physician, Dr. Valentine. He gives me an update that my blood's been replaced and my condition is stabilized. Then it's lights out again. When next I awake, I'm actually feeling much better. I'm attached to some sort of breathing machine, which is making a rhythmic sound. My inflatable leggings, which I'm wearing to avoid developing bed sores, has a counter rhythm of its own going. Then the beeping of my vital monitor and some of the other machines have their own beats going as well. I start to jam with the machines, tapping along with my own rhythm on the metal bed railing. For the first time since this all started, I'm actually able to laugh. Of all the intensive care nursing staff, I have only one friend. I call our nurse Nancy, and she cheerfully checks in at regular intervals to buoy my spirits. She also commiserates with my thoughts about the quality of my care at St. Vincent's. A day after the music jam session with the ICU machines, I ring my bedside buzzer for a nurse and get no response. I ring several more times, no answer. Now I'm getting annoyed and realize that my life hangs in the balance if no one responds. Since all the transfusion equipment and the straitjacket had been removed, I disconnect my vital monitoring tabs, which causes an alarm to ring at the nurse's station, alerting them that I have flatlined. Nothing. After waiting for a period long after I would have died had I flatlined, I get up and angrily head into the hallway to find that the nurse's station is empty with the alarm ringing. I start to yell, Nurse! Nurse! And one appears from another room. Before I can complain, she cusses me out for unplugging myself 
and leaving my room, gets another nurse, and they both roughly escort me back to my room and into my bed, then plug me back in. When I start to complain, I pass out again. One of the craziest features of intensive care is that they wake me up every hour or two for a variety of procedures. To use a portable x-ray machine to check for pneumonia, to give me various meds, to change a catheter, to rotate my body, and to bathe me. These sleep interruptions are unrelenting, which doesn't make sense because what's more important to a recovering patient than rest? I'm delirious with sleep deprivation. This type of treatment is a serious systemic flaw in the entire intensive care system. After a couple days of feeling better, I awake in the middle of the night and realize that rigors is starting again. I'm sweating and delirious, and sepsis will soon overwhelm my body. I scream for help, and then I pass out. Over an indeterminate period of time, I wake up and lose consciousness a number of times. It's the same thing all over again. A team of nurses and doctors surround my bed. I have transfusion needles in both sides of my neck. My bed is bright red with blood, and I'm straitjacketed. Finally, I awake and the infection is gone. I'm stabilized enough to move out of the intensive care section and into a bed in the general hospital. But I decide I don't want to spend one more minute at St. Vincent's Hospital. Nancy, the nurse, puts in a call to my sister, Michelle, who's also a nurse. She agrees with my plan to leave the hospital as soon as I'm released from intensive care and generously offers to fly from Seattle to nurse me when I get home. The next day, after some angry negotiations with the hospital administrator, I sign my self-release papers against the recommendations of my intensive care doctor. Nancy, the nurse, brings me my bag of belongings, which contains my cell, my clothes, my keys, but my wallet is empty and my brand new Adidas special edition black sneakers are not in the bag. I put on my clothes and walk barefoot to the director of security's office, brush past his secretary and interrupt him on a phone call. When I tell him what's missing from the bag, he says defensively, you better be careful who you call a thief. I respond, well, if my things were in the lock safe and now some are missing, what other conclusion can I draw? They could have been stolen by whoever delivered them to me or returned them to you. I leave the room, shaking my head in disgust. My sister doesn't show to pick me up at the appointed time. Nurse Nancy once again takes pity on me, escorting me into a supply closet near the ICU. How about we make you some special shoes? We don't want you walking in the snow in your bare feet. She then uses surgical tape to secure two white flat plastic boards shaped like shoe soles to the bottoms of my feet. They're normally used as a plaster cast base for broken legs. She then walks me to the street, hails a cab, and gives me $10 to cover my cab fare. Nancy, I will never forget you. I tell her with tears in my eyes. You're the only bright spot in this whole effing hospital. Thank you so much for everything. And she gives me a big hug. Back at my apartment, I recharge my phone, and the most recent message is from my sister, telling me that her cross-country flight was delayed and she's flown into JFK with a terrible flu. When she arrives at my apartment, she's wearing a surgical mask she bought on the way in from the airport. She gives me one to wear as well. She refuses to hug me and announces, in your weakened state, if you catch a flu, it could be fatal. She wants to stay at a hotel and hire a home nurse to take care of me, but I just put on my mask and tell her I'll be fine. She sleeps on the couch wearing the mask. In the middle of the night, 
She wakes up coughing uncontrollably. I get up and I administer some codeine cough medicine, and I say to her, Frankly, Michelle, this whole situation falls so far short of good nursing, and then I can't continue as we both start laughing hysterically while she coughs and laughs and coughs and laughs. Epilogue. St. Vincent's was founded in 1849 in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan. It closed on April 30, 2010, under circumstances that triggered an investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Fraud Unit, which was probing whether the highest-ranking members of the hospital had purposely tanked its finances so the hospital building could be sold to a private developer for luxury condos. District Attorney Cyrus Vance's team also looked into whether vendors double bill for services, gave kickbacks for contracts, and hired relatives of hospital employees. After leaving their jobs, two senior administrators got more than a million dollars each. The top nursing officer was paid a cool $1.3 million after leaving her job, and the president, who left in 2004, pocketed a million dollars over the next four years. St. Vincent's Hospital turned out to be just as corrupt as it was incompetent. The characters and events portrayed in this podcast are based on my truth, with some names and facts changed for privacy. All conversations and dialogues are based on my best memory, but are not word-for-word recreations. The Compulsive Storyteller is written and narrated by me, Greg Lefebvre, and co-produced with Peter Kokoma, who's also made our theme song. If you enjoyed this week's episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And also, if you could leave a review, that would be fantastic. Follow the show on Instagram, at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more information at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you don't like this one, the next one will be another story. (laughs) ¶¶